from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. I bet you that one day you're going to look back at this interview in 30 years and you're going to walk into somebody's office. They're going to make a little cut in your skin. They're going to pop out a little micro SD card out of your skull implant. And it's because you said your memory's a little bad. You're just going to get a new chip. You're going to upgrade from 8 megabytes to 16 megabytes. This episode concludes our series with one of the top-rated medical institutions in the country, Johns Hopkins Medicine. When patients find themselves needing highly specialized, researched, and practiced procedures, it's just assumed that someone has dedicated their career to optimizing outcomes in that narrow specialty. And one of the points to this show is recognizing that sometimes we can't take critical medical needs to the corner gas station. Hopefully, if you're listening, you have the wherewithal to travel to the top specialist in the country. We have one of those here with us today. We hope you and your loved ones won't need his services, but if you or someone you care about has a need for neuroplastic and reconstructive surgery, you'll now know the doctor who created the field. This is medicine. We're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Of course, first, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tayback. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. And our special guest, Dr. Chad Gordon. He is the internationally recognized expert and pioneer behind the emerging field known as neuroplastic and reconstructive surgery. He is Chief of Neuroplastic and Reconstructive Surgery and Director for Johns Hopkins Medicine, Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and Neurological Surgery at Johns Hopkins, and he also chairs the Harvard Hopkins Neuroplastic Surgery Symposium, and he's the President of the Society of Neuroplastic Surgery. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gordon. Thank you, Bill. First of all, doctor, what leads to the need for and exactly what is neuroplastic and reconstructive surgery? From a high-level view, what really drives my passion, the patients and the team for which I work with, is that all patients that require brain surgery should not look like they had brain surgery. And that really summarizes it to the point of what we learned over 50 years ago when it comes to breast cancer surgery. As you can imagine, if a woman suffers from breast cancer surgery in the 1950s, it was really about treating the cancer and not really treating the patient. And what's ironic is that we're here in 2020 and brain cancer and skull tumors and skull defects are really treated by brain surgeons who are concentrating on the brain. They're not really concentrating on the restoration of someone's appearance to make it look like they have no deformity or ever had surgery. And that really encompasses our goal. So is this largely a cosmetic process after you have dealt with the challenges of brain surgery, or is this something you do actually during the brain surgery itself? Yes. Yeah, so I love that you use the word cosmetic because I absolutely despise that word because the word cosmetic in plastic surgery is defined as taking someone who looks quote unquote normal and making them more pretty or handsome. And that's what drives me crazy. People that have brain surgery or need brain surgery, they're not trying to look more pretty or more handsome. They're just trying to look like themselves after surgery. And that's our mission. We're not trying to make you look better. We're trying to make it look like you never required somebody to open up your scalp, remove part of your skull and operate on your brain and put things back together so that you have no deformity. Imagine going on a first date or your brother comes home and has a dent on the side of his head after having brain surgery. 
Do you look at them the same way? Do you think they have the same mental capacity they used to have? A lot of times we get this social stigma passed on to us by having brain surgery because our head doesn't look the same, but really it's just an appearance thing. And so I cringe when I hear the word cosmetic because I feel that I need to defend all the patients in the world that either need brain surgery or have had brain surgery and that don't look like themselves anymore. I noticed during one of your online videos that you talked about having performed about 500 surgeries. What is the original and critical need for the brain surgery that usually leads to them coming to you? So most often they're coming because they've either suffered trauma. When you have an injury to your head, the thing that will kill you is brain swelling. And the way to make you survive is to remove part of your skull. That allows your brain to swell without herniating and causing your death or impairment forever. Now, when that bone comes off, a lot of times the swelling will go away after weeks or months and then needs to be put back in. But if it takes too long, then the bone's no longer viable. The other scenario is just related to common day brain surgery. It doesn't really matter why you needed brain surgery. The access to the brain is 75% on the side of your head. We don't go through your forehead and we don't go through the back of your head because the bone is either thicker or going right through your forehead would leave a deformity in and a scar in itself. So 75% of all brain surgeries through the side. Unfortunately, you have a large chewing muscle there. You have a temporal fat pad there. You have a delicate scalp there. And not all that area is covered by hair. And so the simple matter of having brain surgery requires removing part of the bone, like a bottle cap. And putting that bottle cap back, that is actually dead bone once you've disconnected it, problems can happen with that bone. It can shrivel up like a grape goes to a raisin. It can get infected because it was taken off and then put back. Chemotherapy, radiation, smoking, diabetes, all these comorbidities can lead to problems. So number one, having trauma to your head. Number two, ever requiring brain surgery. A lot of times they don't look like themselves ever again because the person who did their brain surgery was trained for seven years in a residency to operate on the brain. They weren't trained to reconstruct the skull or to do the operation in a way to preserve an appearance. And then the third thing is really tumors. You can unfortunately have a brain tumor that invades part of your skull, which means it wouldn't make sense taking that part of your brain out and leaving the skull disease behind. So they've lost their skull because of a tumor of the brain invading it. Or people actually can develop skull tumors. I have to ask you, Dr. Gordon. What's the difference between what you're going to do in closing and optimizing the look that someone has after brain surgery versus the doctor that's focused on the brain? What are you going to bring to the party? So you just said it yourself. They're focused on the brain. It all comes down to attention to detail. When I'm opening up the scalp, I'm not worried about the brain. I'm opening up the scalp and using delicate maneuvers for the muscle and the fat getting down to the bone, then turning the operation over to the brain surgeon when the brain surgery is involved. And when they're done doing the part that they so much care about, they can leave the operating room and then I put everything back together. Again, just like a hood on a car, you wouldn't want to scratch or dent on your Bentley or Ferrari. And that's what these patients unfortunately are getting. Try running a company as a CEO or try being a teacher or a doctor with a dent on the side of your head or a scar that healed pretty wide because it was closed under high tension or missing some of your hair on the side of your head because the vascularity of the scalp isn't that good like it was. These are small details. And to you, it might sound funny because you're having brain surgery. What do you care about a bad scar? What do you care about a dent? But guess what? It's not 1970 anymore. It's not 1980 anymore, Bill. Patients deserve a bar that is very, very high now. 
neurosurgeons are doing complex operations like they've never done before and getting amazing outcomes. And that's why this field is growing so fast. Speaking about that, I can't help but ask the annoying question is, does insurance pay for you? Every single one. That 650 skull reconstructions that I've performed have been covered every single time. All I have to do is simply take a picture and write a letter and state the exact thing you asked in the beginning of this show. This is not cosmetic surgery. That's my opening line. This is making the patient look like themselves before they had brain surgery. Question for you. you know, in my realm, now with neurocritical care, which has also had a metamorphosis, we're seeing a lot more therapeutic craniectomies. In the old days, it was like a last-ditch effort that perhaps you would do a craniectomy for somebody who's having a brain herniation. Is this adding a considerable number of cases to your institution, or are there highly technical neurosurgical procedures that are really adding more to, to your numbers out there in Johns Hopkins? Stephen, you're exactly right. The literature is showing now that when you have a major injury to your brain, the best thing to do is to get the bone off and big is better. The more bone you take off in that critical window of injury, the more chance that the brain has room to survive and swell safely. 10, 20, 30 years ago, that was a, let's say, a controversial topic, but the answer is now clear. And by taking that bone off, like you said, requires the bone to be either stored in a freezer or stored sometimes under the skin of your abdominal wall. And that leads risk for infection. Just like if you leave something in your refrigerator for too long, it's not good anymore. And that bone shrivels up or gets infected. And that's where I come into play. So I've been placing skull implants for the last 10 or 11 years. I place a lot more than the average surgeon. I've invented different design algorithms unlike the original design algorithm for skull implants. When skull implants were started around the year 2000, they were built and only manufactured to replace the missing bone. But when that bone comes off, you also have muscle and fat that shrinks away. And so if you don't design the implant the right way, you'll still end up having a dent because it's not filling in the muscle and the fat that you're missing. The other thing that we've invented recently are smart cranial implants. Just like your phone has changed your life, there's no reason why we shouldn't be putting in smart cranial implants. Many of these patients that you just described in your neurocritical care unit have brain injuries that either lead to hydrocephalus or a high pressure inside their head or seizures with epilepsy. So why are we taking giant 3D printed skull implants that are solid and plastic with underutilized space? And so at Hopkins, we've written many patents and performed many first-in-human operations using that space inside to add technologies. To us, it's the ultimate wearable technology. And we can reconstruct you with that same skull implant, and nobody knows there's things inside. By smart, do you mean, doctor, that it actually allows for expansion at certain times? No, that's a good question, Bill. By meaning smart, I mean it has an inherent function inside. Rather than being a solid piece of plastic that was made with a 3D printer to reconstruct your missing bone, why wouldn't I put a device in there that helps the brain that's injured three or four millimeters away? So either a computer in there, a biosensor in there that tells you the pressure's high, a shunt valve in there, maybe you have too much fluid on your brain, like a hydrocephalus valve. The most exciting thing that we're developing right now, and we're actually in the middle of animal trials, similar to Elon Musk with his animal trials, is we're creating the world's first skull implant with a medicine reservoir that will deliver medicine through multiple catheters to your brain. To Stephen's point, he has dozens of patients that come through the NCCU with brain problems related to their brain tumors. It's hard to fix brain tumors because of the blood-brain barrier. We just can't get medicine to the brain. The brain is designed to keep out toxins, just like chemotherapy agents. And so we're going to try to bypass the blood-brain barrier like never before. 
and we're going to put these skull implants in and it's going to have a gas tank and it's going to have catheters and it's going to revolutionize the world. So question for you, because obviously, I mean, I'll have to just deduce that if somebody is having any kind of neurosurgery, it would be ideal to have a plastics approach initially rather than just to have a plastics approach after the fact. And with the few thousand institutions that perform neurosurgery, my understanding is that there's only one Dr. Gordon. What do we do at our local community hospital that needs neurosurgery? What can we tell our neurosurgeons? How can we alter their approach so that your work is much less invasive or intensive three months down the road, six months down the road when they actually have to come to you? There's not enough we can do. And the way we do this is we approach it from multiple angles. Number one, we started a fellowship at Johns Hopkins. So we train one or two surgeons a year that come in from around the world or around the country, and they spend one or two years with us, and they do 130 skull reconstructions in one year. And I teach them all the fine details. So that allows them to leave Baltimore and go start their own program with another amazing brain surgery program. And so that's one angle. But as you can see, that's puny. That's going to take a millennium to really reach the world. The other thing we do is we do a symposium every year, as you touched on in the beginning of the show. We've gone back and forth between Johns Hopkins and Harvard Medical School for the last six years, and we bring together neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons and experts from around the world, and we try to open up the other side of their brain and say, put the ego aside as a neurosurgeon and say, maybe I should work more with my plastic surgeon. And then for the plastic surgeon that attends the conference, we show them these new techniques that I employ in Baltimore. And to show them, yes, as a plastic surgeon doing hand surgery or breast cancer, maybe open your eyes to the idea or conception that you can work more closely with your neurosurgeon. Most of the plastic reconstructive surgeons I know have gone into the big money fields, the cosmetic fields, to use the word that you despise, how to make people look prettier and also to make lots of money in, in so doing. So what made you decide to do something that is really in a much more academic and much more altruistic endeavor? What, what was it that motivated you? The real answer is that when I went to college, I started off as a chemistry major and they made me take either a language or an art class. So I took art and it was drawing 101 and I fell in love with it. And by sophomore year, I went back to my pre-med advisor and I said, you know, I really love this drawing and sculpture. I said, I'm thinking of going as a fine arts major with a minor in chemistry. And they said, you're absolutely crazy. You'll never go to medical school. This is the stupidest thing I've heard in a long time. And I just decided to push through it. And I finished as a pre-med major with a major in fine arts, drawing and sculpture. And I pushed through to get into medical school. And when I was there, I realized the beautiful thing about being a fine arts major is they teach you something called a mind's eye, which is the ability to see it before you create it. And I think what that helped me do was to give me a new perspective for skull reconstruction that the neurosurgeons hadn't developed. A neurosurgeon most often is coming to a skull reconstruction as an afterthought. They've already done the part that they care most about. This is just something that needs to be done so the patient can wake up and move on. That's not what it is for me. For me, it's fixing the patient in, let's say, an artistic way, point blank, so it doesn't look like you ever had skull reconstruction. And I think in the right way, done safely, we can get you there. So, Dr. Gordon, I understand you've also received some awards for computer-assisted and robot-assisted technologies. What are you doing there? 
when I came to Hopkins, it was actually part of a team they were building for reconstruction of face patients who needed face transplantation. You were actually involved in one of the first ones at Cleveland, weren't yeah, you? Yes. So the first face transplant in the United States was done in December 2008. I was on the team. It was an extremely amazing time in my life. And after I had gone to Boston and finished training, I was recruited to Hopkins to help with face transplant program. And when I got here, I realized that the first one we did in the United States took us 22 hours. But when we spent maybe eight hours dissecting a face off of a donor who was brain dead, but still with a beating heart, and we had a wonderful recipient, Connie Cole, who needed a face after being shot in the face by her husband, we literally brought the face out of room number four and went into room number five. And we went like this, how do they go together? You know, it was literally a guesstimate. And when I got to Baltimore, I realized there were so many smart people around me. If I could take out my cell phone and get to the market much better, I'm sure we could design computers and robots programs to either help with face transplant or to even help with skull reconstruction. And that's what we've done. And we've gotten many patents on that. Is that like a 3D mapping of the face and skull structure? That's exactly right. So imagine something in space and something that needs that floating object. And having a computer-guided program that changes from green to blue when it lands in the right spot. You know, it's something as simple as that. And what's ironic is when we developed that for face, we realized, well, this object could be a skull implant, and the recipient could just be a skull missing part of his skull. And so a face going to a face recipient is almost like a skull implant going to a skull recipient. So there was a lot of overlap. Again, the most exciting ones I like to talk about are the skull implants of the future. We literally are designing skull implants that will be around in 2030, 2040, and you're going to remember tonight's radio show, and you're going to say, man, I thought that guy was crazy when he was talking about putting things inside solid pieces of plastic, and it's going to be normal. For instance, I have an animal right now walking around with four catheters in his brain, and nobody can tell because the animal looks normal. Here's a crazy statistic, Bill. As soon as we turn 65, one in five of us will have a brain problem that will require surgery. And when, when you require surgery, you're going to want to look like yourself. And you're going to want to go back to your amazing job. And you're going to want to go out for dinner without the waiter looking at the side of your head and saying, why is he a dent on the side of your head? Or why does he have a bump on the side of his head because they put some technology above his skull? We're going to create these things that fit in right into the bone space, connect to your brain, close the scalp up. And nobody will know you're either getting battery-powered electric waves to your brain. It's pretty much what Apple and Google and, you know, all these cell phone companies did over the last 30 years. We're going to do with skull implants. We're going to take 30 seconds and we'll be right back. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time.
Dr. Steve, I wonder if you could tell me, you were certified in your neurocritical care sometime in the last number of years. What are the types of patients that come to your hospital? Why are they there? What brought them to you? What type of critical care do they need? And how could this apply? Well, that's actually why I asked Dr. Gordon the question relative to craniectomies, because I was the medical director of a trauma center for 20 years, but my current hospital is, no, is not a trauma center. So on the trauma side, there were a lot of patients with gunshot wounds, crush injuries from motor vehicle accidents, periodic explosions, where there would be just penetrating trauma to the skull that, that created its own defects. In my current institution now, in the, in the neuro ICU, we're still clipping some aneurysms. Most of them are being coiled, but those do require removal of a skull flap so that the blood vessel that has a defect can be corrected but then that it does leave a defect that needs to be replaced, often in our institution with the native bone. We do have a fair number of emergency craniectomies where the brain is so swollen that in order to save the patient, you must remove a large bone flap to allow the brain to swell. The brain cannot swell very much without permanent damage because it's an enclosed space. The beauty of the skull is that it keeps the brain very well protected. It's sort of buoyant in cerebral spinal fluid. So it has internal fluid where the brain can sort of bounce around, but there's only room for some fluids, some blood and brain tissue. And as soon as you exceed your limit, the brain has nowhere to go. If you have swelling in your abdomen, you can get massively distended without causing major problems. Once your brain starts to swell, you have only a little bit of leeway before that swelling starts compressing blood vessels and occludes the blood supply and does even more damage to the brain. So you can have your initial injury, but then it's the swelling that puts so much pressure within the brain itself that it starts clamping off its own vasculature. And then the more brain dies because of the brain swelling. And then the brain has nowhere to go. So it tends to go down the center hole where the spinal cord is. And so that's what's called a herniation. And you cannot come back from that at, once you get to a certain point. So to prevent the swelling from being catastrophic and causing brain injury, one of the heroic emergency procedures that we see in my institution would be an emergency craniectomy where the brain is swelling. Now you give it a point of egress that will not be harmful. So you open up a big skull flap, you let the brain swell, relieve the pressure so that the circulation in the brain is maintained until which time the underlying problem that caused the swelling is able to heal and resolve. And then the brain shrinks back down into its normal cavity. How does something like that happen without terrible risk of infection in the brain if you actually remove someone's top of someone's head? Well, the scalp will be put back together. So the way to look at it is almost like a three-layer peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? You have your scalp, your bone, and your brain. And so just because you remove the bone, the brain has a lot of room to swell, maybe a half an inch, let's say, but the scalp will be closed. And so the infection risk is really coming from the bacteria that's above your skin. But to Stephen's point, I'll give him an example of why I think skull implants of the future are here to stay. Steven's talking about what we describe as intracranial hypertension. Your brain is jello floating in water filled within a fixed structure, the box, the skull, okay? Now, if you add blood to that, as Steven said, or you make swelling occur in the brain, you're adding too much pressure in the box, and that's risking life, period. So what we need is a pressure monitor. We need a pressure sensor. And so that's what we did three years ago. We did the world's first skull implant with a pressure sensor inside 
Just let's say like you cook a turkey in the oven and that little thing pops out of the turkey when it's done. That's the size of this little sensor that we put in a skull implant. Now, to Stephen's point, he's going to say, why did you do this first world's case? And my answer is going to be that we had a 16-year-old woman who was shot in the head, unfortunately, wrong place, wrong time. And after the bullet transversed the side of her brain, the non-important side, she had a long four or five-month recovery where she was able to walk and speak again. However, her skull was never put back. And the reason why it had never been put back is because her brain never really got rid of the swelling. So the mother came to Baltimore with her daughter and said, Dr. Gordon, I'm here to get a skull reconstruction from my daughter because she wants to go back to her normal life, not worrying about falling down. Her balance is a little off because her brain doesn't really have that box. But on the other hand, I'm thinking of running out of your office because I'm scared that when you go to put the skull implant on top of my daughter's brain that's swollen, you're going to cause her to herniate like Stephen described. You're going to be pushing on her swollen brain. So I sat the mom down and said, how would you like it if we created the world's first skull implant with a pressure monitor inside that skull implant? It's just a piece of plastic. We have wireless technology that's already FDA approved. It's just nobody ever did it before. And how about I carve out a little space in that piece of plastic? I'll put a little pressure sensor right above your daughter's brain and we can test it wirelessly three days after surgery, three months after surgery, three years after surgery. So if your daughter was to have problems from her head, let's say a headache or change in vision, you could look at me and say, is it because you put that skull implant that my daughter's having that problems? Or is it because she has math homework to do and she has a headache? And I could just wave a little wand over that smart implant. And that's what we did. And it was miraculous. It was just published in one of the main neurosurgery journals around the world last year. And it was the world's first smart cranial implant. And I think it's the tip of the iceberg. Look at your phone. Look how your phone changed your life. The single most important organ in your body, Bill, is your brain. The next 100 years is about your brain. Guess what? You have a bad heart, you have a bad lung, you have a bad liver, you have bad kidneys. We got stuff for that. Transplants, machines, whatever you need, we got it. You have a bad brain, we have nothing. And we will never transplant you a new brain. We can only modify the brain that you were born with. Now, how are we going to modify your brain over the next 100 years? Guess what? Surgeons from around the world have spent billions of dollars developing techniques and technologies to put above your skin, okay? Nobody wants to walk around like Frankenstein with something on their head. They've also developed a technology that sits above your skull, under your skin, but you have a bump still on your head, and it can actually poke up through the skin with respect to time. No one's ever stopped and said, why don't we use the space inside the skull to modify the brain? And that's what we started five years ago, and that's why we're super excited, because we believe we've solved the holy grail. The holy grail is for the next 100 years to develop technologies that will modulate your brain, whatever disease you, God forbid, develop as you get into the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We will have an answer for that. And we will miniaturize it to the point of where on the side of your cell phone, you know how you have that little micro SD card that popped out of the side of your cell phone? I bet you that one day you're going to look back at this interview in 30 years and you're going to walk into somebody's office. They're going to make a little cut in your skin. They're going to pop out a little micro SD card out of your skull implant. And it's because you said your memory's a little bad. You're just going to get a new chip. You're going to upgrade from eight megabytes to 16 megabytes. So I, I have to ask you about some side effects here. When you're replacing the skull with a plastic, do you find that you've had to manage debilitating headaches? What are the side effects and ramifications of some of these surgeries? In 1968, 
there was an orthopedic surgeon that stood up in front of all his colleagues and said, we're doing it completely wrong. And everybody said, what? What's he talking about? This orthopedic surgeon said that the way we treat osteoarthritis or joint disease of the knee is we used to put a metal rod or metal plate across the knee and fuse the knee so you don't bend your knee. He said, we're doing it wrong. We need to cut the knee out, literally cut the knee out that you were born with and take a box and open up a piece of plastic or a plastic joint and replace that joint in 1968. He got booed off the stage and was told he's crazy. Well, guess what? In 2021, if you have a bad knee, nobody's going to question the fact that we're going to replace your joint that you were born with for a piece of plastic out of a box. When they started doing joint replacements, they had high problems with complications, infections, and bleedings. But what happens was there was a subset of surgeons in orthopedic surgeons that said, you know what? I'm going to dedicate my life to doing knee replacement, or I'm going to dedicate my life to shoulder replacement. And instead of doing one knee replacement a year, I'm going to do 100 knee replacements a year. If you do something much more than the average person, your outcomes will be much better. Your complication rates will be much less. And that's why I developed neuroplastic surgery. The surgeons that we're training are saying, you know what? I'm going to dedicate my life to doing skull implants and doing skull reconstruction and getting less complications and better outcomes. Do you see in the future that ever there be a reason to have an implant in a healthy brain in order to predict potentially future problems? Yes. So let me take it one step further. I believe that we are going to start removing normal skulls. I believe there's patients, just like you said, whether it's normal skull, healthy skull, or healthy brain. So if you come to me and you say, my mom and dad both had Alzheimer's, and they both developed it in their 50s, and I'm 30 years old, and we have medicine nowadays that is affected to Alzheimer's, but when I give it to you in a pill form or inject it into your arm, it really doesn't get to your brain. So if I said to you at age 35 that I have something that I could remove your totally normal skull and put in a little thing the size of a half dollar with a catheter into your brain and remove your normal skull. And for the next 15 years, I'm going to pump in medicine into your brain that can prevent Alzheimer's. And it's the size of a half dollar. Are you going to take that, Stephen? Yeah, you bet. There you go. So that's where we're going to be. Think about the military. Think about our military, our wounded warriors. Think how much powerful things we could do to them. We could remove part of their normal skull. We could put medicine in there. So God forbid they're injured on the battlefield. You could take out your Bluetooth wireless cell phone and activate some pain medicine, some seizure medicine, whatever you need for your wounded warriors can be delivered in real time wirelessly from around the world. How about if I take out your normal skull and I put a little camera or ultrasound device into your skull space? And let's say you had an aneurysm clipping, but the doctor who did the aneurysm clipping tells you there's really a significant risk that the other side might have a problem one day and explode and cause bleeding. How cool would it be if I put a little camera inside your skull and you could check your cell phone once a day to see if you have blood inside your head or your doctor could check inside your skull? This is where we're going. I have no doubt we're going there. The question I have is how fast can we work and how big of a team can we create? Because these patients need it. They need it now. All I can say is thank God we have people like you who are willing to dedicate yourself to something that initially feels like it's off the beaten path until you need it. We appreciate what what all you guys do, but it sounds like you're really breaking tremendous new grounds. 
how can they reach you? How can our neurosurgeons get in touch with you to possibly get some information that can help them with their initial surgical approaches? And then how do they reach you after the fact when perhaps they need your help with reconstruction? So the most simplest way, Stephen, is to go on Google and type in neuroplastic surgery, Chad Gordon, and you'll see everything we've done over the last 10 years. That would literally be the simplest way. If you want to take it one step further, you could type in hopkinsmedicine.org backslash neuroplastic surgery, and you'll get to our neuroplastic surgery website with my office coordinator, our physician's assistant, and you'll get all our phone numbers and emails. Dr. Gordon, thank you very much for joining us today. Very, very enlightening. And of course, Dr. Tabak, my good friend, thank you as always for joining after a long day of work. A special thanks to Johns Hopkins for providing us a tour of some of the most accomplished and dedicated specialists in medicine. I have no doubt we'll be back again next year diving into specialists we don't know we need until we need them. And Johns Hopkins is an incredible institution. Medicine We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley, mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next week, everybody. Stay healthy. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.